Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Global Wall Street spent at least part of this week focused on the presidential election, with the nomination of Joe Biden for president and Kamala Harris for vice president. As we all try to come to terms with what a Biden administration would mean for the economy, for business, and for the markets. So this week, we have a special edition of Wall Street Week, one given over to the basic question of how a President Biden would handle the key issues, the economy, taxes, climate and energy, healthcare, and foreign relations. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme. With passion and purpose, let us begin, you and I together, one nation, under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each other. Democratic nominee Joe Biden has big plans, and he's not afraid of paying for them with taxes. He plans to raise the top tax rate on individual income to just under 40% for those earning over $400,000 a year, with the top 1% of households bearing three quarters of that burden. Capital gains taxes would also go up to 39.6% for those with an income of over $1 million a year. President Trump, on the other hand, says he is considering cutting that rate. The Democratic nominee's plans also mean big changes for some of the most profitable companies. Biden plans to raise the corporate tax rate to 28% and impose a 15% minimum tax on profits reported to shareholders. I asked Evercore co-chairman and co-CEO Ralph Schlossstein what the Biden-Harris proposals would mean for the investment banking business. Look, I think uh, we've had a pretty irresponsible fiscal policy uh, prior to uh, the uh, uh, beginning of the COVID pandemic. 
Uh, we had a literally a trillion dollar budget deficit at three and a half percent unemployment, uh, which I think is a truly irresponsible uh, policy. If you look at the share of GDP that has gone to federal taxes, it's declined steadily from about 19.5% to 16.5%, which in my view is inadequate to take care of the the basic needs uh, that we have in government, which is why we were running uh, larger deficits. So I think what we'll find in the Biden administration is uh, perhaps a commitment to a little more of a commitment to things like healthcare and education than we've seen in the current administration, but very importantly, uh, oh, and certainly a big commitment to infrastructure, but very importantly, uh, a willingness to pay for those commitments so that we're not saddling our children and our grandchildren with unacceptable debts. So, so Ralph, I think everyone pretty much agrees we have needed to spend money, and that means borrow money, given the real crisis in the economy. Right now, we're taking a look at a cliffhanger here with fiscal stimulus. As we thought we were going to get something by August 1st, we now are looking at September. Uh, what is the economy going to look like by November 3rd, whoever wins the election? Well, the economy is uh, it's going to be in recovery, uh, but unemployment is still going to be by far unacceptably high, uh, probably one side or the other of nine or 10 percent. So we're going to need to have uh, a continued stimulus. I think the plan that is hopefully at some point will be compromised between the the Democrats in the White House and the Republicans in the Congress uh, is needed for sure. Uh, But once we get on the path of recovery, and, and that will not be really fully done until we have a widely available vaccine uh, and th- widely available uh, therapeutics, uh, because until then, people will be fearful of returning 100% of their lives prior to this. But once we have that, uh, we need to uh, provide more resources through the government. And, and I think Biden has a very intelligent uh, tax plan, part of which is simply reversing some of, uh, but not all of, and certainly the most irresponsible parts of the Trump tax cuts, uh, and also and and paying for uh, the investments that we so uh, strongly need in this country. So, Ralph, pick up on that for a moment and go to your business quite specifically. I mean, you, you guys are the, the investment bankers par excellence. Uh, did you see an uptick in business when the rate went down so far for corporations? And then on the flip side, if it went back up to 28 percent, which is what Vice President Biden's talking about, would that hurt your business? Uh, I think really n- neither an uptick nor uh, a downtick. And let me explain why. Uh, all the corporate rate does uh, is it uh, basically redraws a little bit the line between of the pre-tax earnings, what goes to shareholders, and what goes to the government. Uh, we had a policy that 35% went to the government and 65% went to shareholders. Uh, that was quite honestly out of step and non-competitive with the rest of the world. I think the generally the majority of the uh, world, the developed world, is in the 25 to 28 percent uh, range. Uh, you know, so where 25 to 28 percent of the pre-tax profits go to the government, 
and uh, the rest go to shareholders. That's important because we don't want to lose businesses domiciling in the United States because they perceive relative to other countries that too much of their pre-tax earnings are being taken by government. At 21%, we're probably out of step a little bit with all but the tax havens uh, in the other uh, direction. That was Ralph Schlossstein of Evercore. Coming up, the cost of clean energy. We talked to former presidential candidate Tom Steyer about Joe Biden's climate plans. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Democratic nominee Joe Biden plans to spend $2 trillion over four years on clean energy. And rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement is at the top of his list. We can and we will deal with climate change. It's not only a crisis, it's an enormous opportunity. An opportunity for America to lead the world in clean energy. His extensive plan calls for the eliminating of all carbon emissions in the production of electricity for the power grid by 2030, then pressing on to reach net zero emissions overall by 2050. The biggest emitters of CO2 today are China, the United States, and the European Union. And presidential candidate Biden says clean energy policies will create jobs, including 10 million union jobs and 1 million new jobs in the auto industry. The Biden plan does not ban fracking or rule out nuclear power and other technologies that have divided environmental advocates. Tom Steyer, founder of NextGen America and former Democratic presidential candidate, put climate change at the heart of his policies during his candidacy. I asked him whether Democrats can unite behind Biden's climate plans. You know, it is a plan that deals very aggressively with our need to change our climate uh, affecting po energy policies. But it is also an environmental justice program at its heart, putting the clean air and clean water in underserved black and brown communities at the very heart of the program. And it is also a huge union jobs program across America because we need to rebuild this country in a sustainable and resilient fashion. So I think what they're talking about in healthcare, I think what they're talking about in terms of climate is a broad-based change, a transformative change in America to get us back on track in every way and to pull us together. And that's why I think that's what you're going to see over four days. You're going to see the party come together and you're going to see excitement around the idea that we can change and be effective and move forward together. I'm very excited about it myself. So, Tom, you've been on the subject of climate for a good long time. I mean, you really are an expert in this area, and I take your point about the plan. How's it going to play in Pennsylvania, just to pick a state, which is a key battleground state? And there's a lot of concern, for example, about eliminating fracking. What this plan does is it's aggressive about a goal for creating clean energy, clean electricity generation by 2035. But what it's going to do is it recognizes that's really aggressive, and we're going to have to get going on day one. But we're also, look, I said Joe Biden leads with his heart. He leads with his heart. He cares about people. And he specifically has his heart and soul in the working people and working families of America. So he is going to make sure that he takes care of union members who are working in industries that can decline or are going to decline. And I think that that's absolutely front and center. I've heard him talk about this numerous times, and he never doesn't say that. And it's something that is absolutely front and center for him. And that's why 
the head of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Lonnie Stevenson, who heads the biggest energy union in the country, is strongly supporting the Biden-Harris ticket because he knows that they are going to create millions of union jobs and are going to take care of union workers in declining industries. And that's not a promise, a, a you know, end of the story promise. Oh, yeah, we'll do that, too. That's front and center in who Joe Biden is and where his heart is. And people can believe it because it's true. Tom, this election looks to be different from prior elections in all sorts of ways, but one of them just is the way we vote. I mean, there's the dispute right now over the Postal Service. You've been very active at getting younger voters out with your Next Gen America project. At the same time, it's going to be harder to do that on college campuses this time. How does it change your efforts? Well, David, Next Gen America is the largest youth voter mobilization effort in American history. It's eight years old. And you're right, in 2018, in the midterm elections, NextGen was on over 420 college campuses, including specifically community colleges and historically black colleges and universities. We're on zero today. We went 100% virtual on March 10 because of the coronavirus. We believe that our virtual organizing of people between 18 and 35 will be more effective than we've ever been. We believe, and I personally believe, and that's why I started NextGen, young people vote at half the rate of other American citizens. It's the biggest generation in American history. It's the most diverse generation in American history. We believe they have the power to transform this country with their voices and their votes, and we've been trying to give them the tools to do just that. And I believe 2020 is gonna be the year when they show up in a way that nobody expects and absolutely, we're going to see a youth turnout that beats history, historical records and absolutely transforms our politics. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I believe in. That's what NextGen works for every single day. And I think that they're going to be behind, be behind the Biden-Harris ticket in a huge way. And we're going to see something on November 4th that we've never seen before, which is a transformation of American society in a completely good way. Tom, will those young voters, or for that matter, voters across the entire country, will they turn out physically or will they mail in their ballots? And what does the Democratic Party do in a situation where apparently there's increased confusion, not clarity, over the way our votes will be counted? I think that overwhelmingly it's going to be vote by mail, David. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that we're going to, people are going to have to make sure they do it. They're going to have to be careful about it. A lot of this is going to be making sure that you put your vote in a position where it for sure is going to get counted. And I know the president is muddying the water and is trying to do things to suppress the vote, obviously. But I believe the American people are smart. I believe we'll be organized amongst ourselves. The Democratic Party, for sure, will be trying to make sure that we have a democracy. A democracy, the first right in a democracy is for every citizen's equal right to vote. To take that away is shameful, and it's not going to happen. The American people are going to be organized, and we're going to show up. We're going to take back the country, and our votes are going to get counted. That was Tom Steyer, former Democratic presidential candidate. Coming up, settling the health care debate within the Democratic Party. We talked to former HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius about the evolution of Biden's health care plan. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Healthcare policy has long been a centerpiece for Democrats, even if they don't always agree on what to do about it. Joe Biden was central to former President Obama's Affordable Care Act signed into law on March 23, 2010. If elected Democratic nominee, Biden plans to build on the ACA. The assault on the Affordable Care Act will continue until it's destroyed taking insurance away from more than 20 million people, including more than 15 million people on Medicaid. During the primary season, progressive Democrats like Senator Bernie Sanders pushed for an alternative, Medicare for all. Joe Biden's plan stopped short of that while protecting those with pre-existing conditions and providing a Medicare-like public insurance option. In an effort to lower drug prices, Biden's plan would repeal the current law that bans Medicare from negotiating lower prices with drug manufacturers and would limit price increases for brand and generic drugs. Kathleen Sebelius served as the HHS secretary under President Obama and implemented the Affordable Care Act. I asked her about the approach the Democratic Party is taking toward health care policy. Well, David, it's good to be with you, and I think that what you're seeing is is sort of an evolving approach um, that's likely to continue to evolve, which is good news. Um, there is uh, a unifying principle of the Democratic Party that we saw uh, in the last 50 years, which is a belief that all Americans deserve a right to health care, and so Medicaid and Medicare were passed, the Children's Health Insurance was passed, the Affordable Care Act was passed, all with Democratic presidents uh, putting a stake in the ground to move further and further toward uh, universal coverage. And I think we're continuing that journey. Uh, the campaign, basically, the primaries halted uh, with COVID in, in March, and uh, the Biden campaign had staked out a improvement of the Affordable Care Act, uh, solidifying a lot of the issues that uh, the Trump administration has eroded in the last three years, even though they couldn't uh, manage to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which was one of Trump's promises. They have definitely cut it with a thousand knives. Um, and he also, I think, staked out a very uh, robust public option plan, a lower price, lower administrative cost option for people to choose in the marketplaces and a lower age for Medicare recipients to be able to sign on to Medicare, moving the age from 65 to 60. So that was the position in March. Um, as you say, Bernie Sanders had a Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren supported that. Kamala Harris was 
a longer transition, but eventually ending up with Medicare for All. Now what we have is a, a pretty robust Biden plan on the website. You have a unity document, which is the Sanders delegates and the um, representatives of uh, Joe Biden's health policy team meeting over a series of times and putting out um, some proposals that I would say move even further um, down the road on um, a plan for universal coverage and particularly pay attention to the millions of people who have lost coverage because of COVID-19. People lose their jobs and they've lost health care. There are states that still have refused to expand Medicaid and they are still not entitled to any benefits. So there are plans to, again, take very careful look at, at where we are at the time that the new president is sworn in and move as quickly as possible toward not only filling in those gaps, but I think having a robust public option and looking at ways that the individuals who live in states where the politics are preventing people from getting affordable health care, they would have a very affordable option. Do we know how much this will all cost to really buttress Obamacare and move toward Medicare for All? Are we putting any uh, costs against that, and how are we going to pay for it? Well, I think there are a whole variety of proposals, again, that were during the, the course of the primary that talk about closing some of the tax loopholes, moving um, some of the financial issues uh, that are currently in the private sector into the public sector. But I think one of the things, David, that I would love to see us do as a country, and certainly some of the actuaries do, we always talk about cost as if it's a net zero game, that if we insure more people in America, it will cost X amount. What we don't ever do is say how much it costs if we don't move in that direction, if we leave large portions of our population uninsured or underinsured. What is the cost of that? I think what we're seeing with COVID-19 and the miserable way this administration has handled this response is there is an enormous cost uh, in productivity of our communities, in um, the opportunity for our economy to move forward if we don't get health care right. That was former HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. Coming up, dealing with an economy hit by COVID-19. Former Treasury Secretary and Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers talks about what the economy might look like under a Biden-Harris administration. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. More than 50 million people have filed for unemployment this year. More than 10 million people are going to lose their health insurance this year. Nearly one in six small businesses have closed this year. This election year, the economy is taking on new importance as the country struggles to return to work and reopen schools. Former Treasury Secretary and Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers has made no secret of his support for Joe Biden's proposals. We'd be competent again and we'd care again. We'd have a government that could carry out basic functions based on expertise like all other countries do. We'd have tests that came back in less than two weeks. We'd have masks for everyone who needed them. 
We'd have federal government helping uh, the states. We'd have um, a system that worked. We wouldn't insult um, and alienate all our allies around uh, the world. We'd be basically competent in the work of government, whether you had a conservative or whether you had a progressive ideology. And we'd care. We would care about a country that was still divided by race. We would care about middle class people who literally weren't able to feed their kids because they lost their jobs because of pandemic. We would be fighting to protect people who were unemployed rather than to slash their benefits. We would be fighting to protect the ability of teachers to go to school in safe ways rather than slashing the budget for uh, schools. It's really not very complicated and fundamentally it's about values that are pretty universal. Nobody's against being competent. Nobody's against caring uh, for all Americans. And those are the things we've lost. And those are the things that Joe Biden's been fighting for for 40 some years in uh, public life. So, Larry, some people you know and I know who are investors, who are on Wall Street, who are in business, might say competence is great, caring is great. At the same time, we need real growth. And the priorities are wrong for Joe Biden because at least Donald Trump put as his priorities growth of the economy. We need that growth. Can Joe Biden bring that back with his competence and his caring? Well, I think we should start with this. If you look consistently for 50 years, 60 years, actually, Democratic administrations produce more rapid growth in median family incomes. Democratic administrations produce more rapid growth in real wages. Democratic administrations produce lower unemployment. Now, you might say that's because they don't care about business. But here's the thing. Because building from the middle out is the economic strategy that works, Democratic administrations produce more rapid growth in corporate profits. Democratic administrations produce better returns for stock market investors. That pattern was first pointed out three decades ago, and it's continued to be true over the subsequent uh, three decades. And that will be true with a Biden presidency. Certainly, we're not looking at a strong period uh, for American business with the profit figures we're seeing right now, or a strong period for American labor with the unemployment figures that uh, we're seeing uh, right now. So we're going to see an economic strategy that enables the United States to compete. When we alienate every other country in the world, talking about steel tariffs on Canada for national security reasons, we are putting it to American exports and putting it to American uh, business. And so the way to help the economy, the way to rescue from problems that have been made by the other administration, is George uh, Bill Clinton turned around a mess that he had inherited. Barack Obama turned around a mess 
that he inherited. Jimmy Carter inherited a recession. John Kennedy inherited a uh, recession. A commitment to policies that expand the economy from the middle out. Going back to FDR, that has been uh, the commitment of Democratic presidents, and Joe Biden will be in that tradition. And the historical evidence is that it works. And the historical evidence is that the trickle-down, short short effort to reduce the taxes of big donors doesn't work. It produces stock market bubbles that ultimately implode and lead to grave recessions. And that's not the right economic strategy for our country. Larry, help us understand, if you can, one aspect about Joe Biden's plans. He has some very robust plans when it comes to the the climate, infrastructure, education, which will cost a fair amount of money, which he owns up to. And he talks about taxes, uh, taxes on corporations, taxes on some wealthy individuals to pay for that. At the same time, he says that we have to be careful about taxes depending on where the economy is. Give us a sense of the sequencing here. Is this going to be borrowing money until we can afford actually to raise the taxes or will there be taxes from day one? Yeah, that, that's for uh, a President Biden to declare and Congress to legislate. And the answers will depend on where we, where the economy is. Uh, is uh, at the time. I'll tell you though, David, uh, I don't think austerity economics is the answer in this moment. We're about to get a huge demonstration of that from the huge fiscal cliff the country's about to go over because the Republicans wouldn't negotiate uh, with uh, the Democrats. If we invest in our future, That is taking a burden off my children. It is taking a burden off your children. You know, the interest rate after correcting for inflation is negative. It's below zero in the United States right now. But when we defer maintenance on our nation's roads, when we allow our children to lose intelligence because they have to drink in the water, when it takes 25% longer to fly from Boston to Washington than it did 50 years ago because we've screwed up our air traffic control system. When we make those non-investments, when we allow those infrastructure deficits, they compound to burden our children much more than some accumulation of paper debt. So yes, we've got to make the right choices about borrowing Uh, money and how much to borrow now and in what ways we should tax those with uh, the highest income. But that's not the important deficit we have in our country. The important deficit we have in our country is that we somehow decided we couldn't afford to invest in having pandemic readiness. And we cut all those programs because people were fixated on the deficit. The important deficit in our country is we can't afford to buy tests even though the benefit of each test that we give is probably over $1,000 in terms of the cost of uh, the pandemic and the disease uh, that, is, uh, pre- that is prevented. Let's focus on the things that are most important, and they are not austerity economics 
at a moment of uh, zero uh, interest rates. They are investing in uh, the future. And that is what the Biden program is all about, along with making sure that everybody has a chance to share in that uh, prosperity. Think about it. When it looks like the stock price of some companies might fail or they might not be able to issue debt at a low interest rate, we rush to the rescue with quantitative easing. When unemployed people have hungry kids, Congress goes into recess with the enthusiasm of the president. It's not right. And it's not that hard uh, to fix. The profoundly good news for a Biden administration amidst all the problems, David, is that there are huge amounts of low-hanging fruit, whether it's in protecting the environment, whether it's in helping kids uh, go to college, whether it's in fixing uh, health insurance, whether it's in, can you believe it? There were 100 people with incomes of $10 million who didn't file any tax return, and the IRS made no effort to go after them a few years ago. We as a country can do much better than that. All it takes is competence and caring. And that's what I think is uh, the core of what this election's gonna be about. Do we want more government like the government we've had for the last four years? Or do we want government that is competent and cares? We had pandemics and epidemics four years ago, Ebola. H1N1. They didn't change all our lives. That's what happens when you have competent government. And I think we can have it again. That was Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this special edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.